0: Good evening. Welcome to The Critical Hour. We're coming to you from the capital of the United States of America, Washington, D.C., here on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon running single and holding down the fort for my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, who's off today. For the next two hours, we will explore and analyze the salient news stories that are impacting the global village in which we live. Wyatt Reed is on the ground in eastern Ukraine, interviewing citizens and observing the election process. The numbers so far lean overwhelmingly in favor of bringing the republics into the Russian Federation. Wyatt Reed is a Sputnik News analyst, and he's all over creation, telling us what's going on. Wyatt, what's happening on the eastern part of town, Moscow, Kherson, and uh, extended?
1: Well, thanks for having me. First of all, um, what we're seeing right now is the uh, penultimate. Day of elections here in uh, in these territories, uh, four territories that are considering joining uh, the Russian Federation. That would be Kherson, that would be Zaporozhye, and then Donetsk and Lugansk. Tomorrow will be the last day of voting. I believe we have already achieved over 50% of uh, votes here in Zaporozhye. Kherson, in the regions like Donetsk and Lugansk, uh, we're hearing reported uh, voting uh, numbers as high as 70 to 80 percent right now. So basically, we're we're seeing the uh, results of this referendum, and uh, we have been traveling back and forth and talking to a number of voters, uh, people involved with the organization of these votes. Um, and so far what we 've seen is a quite a different situation from what you hear reported in Western media, where uh, these are these referendums are widely depicted as a sham. Uh, scare quotes are frequently used to describe referendum uh, we 've seen a number of allegations, including the idea that uh, people are being forced to vote at gunpoint, including the idea that people are being bribed to vote um, of course i 've seen no evidence, firsthand as, a, as an observer here, uh, to support any of those claims. Uh, and in fact, I've seen the opposite. Really, I've seen a number of people coming out to vote who uh, who are who uh, view this opportunity, or who view this chance to vote as really a, a chance at real self-determination. Um, they told me, uh, you know, I, I have spoken to. Probably, uh, uh maybe a, a dozen voters here. And I've heard, uh, pretty much universally described, uh, the, the desire for peace, the desire, uh, to not live under a regime that, uh, prevents people from speaking Russian, effectively criminalizes large uh, sections of the population, um, that refuses to provide people, uh, in these regions with, Things like, uh, food, things like heat, things like, uh, roads, things like water, you know what I mean? the mm-hmm. All the essentials that uh, people come to depend on. Uh, the regime in Kiev is widely seen in these regions as being unwilling or unable to provide, um, largely un- unwilling, uh, So, you know, to me, it's not much of a surprise that we would see this level of turnout, that we would see so many people coming out and and expressing uh, this level of pride in this vote and uh, who go 180 degrees from uh, what we hear in in the Western media in terms of uh, this referendum that's happening here
0: now. So, uh, did you see? Um, you were in Herson. Did you see any evidence of fighting? Did you hear any evidence of fighting? How did things look in that area? Was it cool, calm? Give me calm. Was it you know war-torn hellscape? You know, give us an idea of what you saw, what the atmosphere was like, what the situation is like on the ground in, in Herson.
1: Well, in Kherson, there's heavy fighting. Um, and in, in route to uh, a number of towns where we witnessed uh, boating and we saw firsthand some of the aftermath of uh, rocket attacks, high Mars attacks, US sponsored attacks on these villages. Uh, we were able to see that firsthand. And we um, noticed in Kherson specifically just en uh, route to some of these villages. I mean, you can see uh, with your, with your eyes you can see uh the aftermath of artillery strikes you can see smoke off in the distance we watched a number of uh we watched two sukhoi jets fighter jets uh flying uh maybe maybe 50 meters above the ground uh we we could see them off in the distance presumably on a shaping run um so you know this this fighting this uh battle this war is uh very much at the forefront of people's consciousness, uh, it's hard to avoid if you're in certain parts of the country, and um, you know it, uh, it's it's a level of, of instability that that uh, can give way to serious attacks on on journalists. And uh, you know, for, for for me personally, it is it is a bit alarming. Um, we've seen attacks in recent days. Uh, the group that was most recently in Kherson about two days ago. Um, they, they had two explosions that were reported about 100 meters away from them. Uh, the RT journalist, Murad Gazdyev, uh the night before last, his hotel room was shelled with artillery. Uh, he had to dig his cameraman out of the rubble. Um, so we know that uh, people who are covering these events uh, are being uh, subjected to attacks. Uh, I, I can't say for sure that they are being targeted, but it certainly seems that way. Um, so there's a, a great deal of, uh, of of anxiety as well in terms of just making sure that that people are safe here, and uh, that's something that, again, you know, we, we as the inter- as international observers and as journalists, we're getting a very small taste of what people have been telling us they've been experiencing here for the past eight years.
0: In talking to the people, did you get any kind of idea of what they expected, what what they saw coming next, um, you know, how, how they how they saw, um, you know, their future regarding after this, um, you know, when it, it certainly appears that they're going to become part of Russia. Your discussion, any discussions on that with either the people on the ground there or with people in Moscow or other places that you visited?
1: Absolutely. Well, so here in Moscow, right, I today we. We were at a polling station, and the people who are coming to vote are not Moscow residents. They are refugees from Ukrainian, former Ukrainian territories uh, who were forced to leave, um, and the vast majority of them went to Russia, believe it or not. Uh, this is something that is not reported uh, in the Western media, but over 2 million people have come from uh, these regions, and they've decided to go to Russia, uh, not something that you'll hear in Western media. Um, But of course, they uh, described to me that their hopes will that they'll they'll be able to be part of a modern and functioning society that uh, when they align with they realign with Russia, because these are communities that historically were Russian. They um, have always considered themselves Russian for the most part. When they realign with Russia, they expect to receive protection, right, protection from the Kiev regime. Uh, protection from the elements they expect to uh, have access to these services that we're talking about you know it's it's difficult to say right now exactly how quickly it'll be able uh the 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 russian federation will be able to restore those services uh because you know we're talking about areas that are under bombardment that are uh active scenes of hostilities um but with this referendum with this decision by these populations to join uh, the Russian Federation that will certainly give the Russian government a bit more leeway in defending them uh, from these ongoing attacks on the part of the Kiev regime.
0: And what are your plans? What is, you know, how long are you going to be there? What are your plans? You know, we plan on talking with you a couple times this week, but what are you going to be up to over the course of the week as you, um, you know, travel around the area?
1: Well, I should be here at least until the 29th uh i i plan on going out and then interviewing as many voters as i possibly can that to me is the most interesting thing i can be doing here right now uh talking to people and asking them why why are you coming out here and voting why do you think it's so important to do this knowing as they do that just by participating in these referendums they risk being labeled enemies of the state by the ukrainian regime uh being added to what amount uh, to kill lists. Uh, so this is not something that people are, are doing a, a, in the abstract. This is something they, they know when, they, when they're coming out to vote for this. They, they risk um, potential uh, efforts to take their lives. So, uh, you know, it's, it's a big, important decision for them. And, uh, you know, I think it's important that we have journalists out here that are willing to tell their stories. Uh, the Western... Mainstream media certainly not willing to do so. They were in 2014, you know, you saw a number of articles coming out that were uh, reporting even in The Guardian, New York Times, CNN, discussing, uh, for example, the Kiev regime's uh, uh, fondness, apparent fondness for Nazis, their willingness to formally incorporate Nazi formations uh, into their uh, armed forces, including the ADAR Battalion, Azov Battalion, the Tornado Battalion, people who uh, have been implicated in horrific acts, not just uh, crimes against humanity. We're talking about uh, raping children um, and people who have been uh, convicted of these things and then subsequently released by the Zelensky regime in an effort to uh, pursue their ongoing attacks on Russia. All of this has obviously been... uh been enforced with the complicity of the Western governments that are backing the Ukrainian regime, uh, the United States most notable among them. And uh, whether or not they're able to, to survive over the next few months, I think the, the, the sense that I hear is that um, this this effort by, by Zelensky and company to to bring them to heel will inevitably fail uh, these people are not, uh, willing to, to renounce their loyalties to Russia. They overwhelmingly describe themselves as Russian speakers and as, as happy to see Russian forces interact with them. They overwhelmingly reject these, uh, mainstream media claims that they are being, uh, coerced into voting, that they uh, are being bribed into voting. Um, and so I expect that, uh, no, you know, no, no matter how the Western media chooses to portray these votes, uh, it will have a, a serious and meaningful consequences uh, for the people on the ground and uh, will hopefully be able to make their lives a little bit better here in the short uh, to intermediate term.
0: You know, one of the things I'm wondering about, you know, we hear about Europe um lack of hot water and hotels and, um, you know, just a lot of the basics that people need on a day-to-day basis they're having problems with. In Moscow, in the Russian regions, what is your experiences as far as the, you know, the amenities that we're accustomed to on a day-to-day basis? Uh, We got about a minute and a half.
1: Well, uh, everywhere I've been is extremely warm. Uh, Gas is significantly cheaper than it is in the United States. Energy supplies here are not at risk. The sanctions that the West has unilaterally imposed on Russia, uh, they describe them as the international community's sanctions on Russia. We know that is is a lie. It's really just uh, Western Europe and Eastern Europe and uh, the United States that are really doing this. Uh, All of these things seem to be backfiring. Uh, Russians are not suffering from elevated energy prices or really uh, elevated prices of any type. And... Meanwhile, Europeans are suffering, struggling. Their energy bills in some countries have gone up seven to 800% in the span of a year. Uh, we see the euro dropping below the U.S. dollar for the first time, and now the British pound is about to do the same. All of this, to me, uh, signals that uh, the decision by European leaders to follow the American oligarchy down this uh, terrible path has had uh, awful results for the working people of these countries. And really, you know, if if you ask me, uh, until they decide to change their tune, uh, things are not going to get better for working people uh, in Europe, in the United States, uh, or really in any of these countries that have decided to uh, take this economic aggression against Russia to the next
0: level. Wyatt Reed is a Sputnik news analyst. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Thousands of Germans have taken to the street demanding that Nord Stream 2 should be open to mitigate the desperate economic condition in their land. Also, the pound is crashing and the Italian elections have been dominated by the right-wing brothers party. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, and researcher. Dr. Horn, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
2: Thank you for inviting me.
0: Press TV reports thousands of protesters took to the streets in the northeastern German seaside town of Lubmin on Sunday, urging officials to put into service the halted Nord Stream 2 pipeline project that was designed to transport fuel from Russia to Germany. Dr. Horn, what we're seeing now is kind of a clash, and that is the European leaders sitting in the middle. On one side, they've got the Biden administration saying, you've got to hold on any minute now, the Ruskies are going to fall. And on the other side, we've got their actual constituents saying uh, we can't wait for the Ruskies. We're about to fall right now. Dr. Horn.
2: Well, I'm not sure what these leaders are looking at. If you look at the value of the ruble before February 24, before the advent of the special military operation, as it's called in Moscow, uh, it was trading at 70 plus to the dollar. Now it's trading at 57 to the dollar. So it's actually strengthened. And indeed, uh, you would not necessarily be off base if you thought that the so called Ruskies are actually trolling their neighbors to the west. Uh, there was a report recently that in St. Petersburg, formerly Leningrad, they're thinking about uh, heating the sidewalks. Uh, I guess that the implication is that homeowners in Posh, Sheik, and Tony, London. Uh, can move and be warm on the sidewalks of Russia. And with regard to the crisis in London, uh, it's obviously, in a sense, uh, engineered. Uh, that is to say, the incoming uh, Liz Truss administration regime, the second coming of Margaret Thatcher, has embarked upon a reagan program of cutting task taxes and then borrowing Make up the shortfall, and many entrepreneurs and capitalists are not buying that harebrained prescription and they're bailing out. I recall the time when the British pound was worth two dollars and forty cents, it's now headed to parity that is to say, one dollar for one pound. Now, that may be good for tourists from the United States. It's not clear if it's good for British consumers, because even though the price of a barrel of petroleum may be falling in a certain sense, if you have to buy that petroleum in dollars and you don't necessarily have enough dollars because of the fall in the British pound, you're still going to be stung, stung quite viciously. And with regard to Italy, I'm afraid to say that this result had a certain predictability to it. What I mean is, if you go back to the Cold War, a strategic objective of U.S. imperialism was weakening the Italian Communist Party, one of the strongest left-wing parties in the world. It didn't matter that the Italian Communist Party tried to move away from Moscow by formulating this so-called Euro-Communist notion, uh, just like it didn't matter that Yugoslavia, under Marshal Tito, uh, broke with Moscow as early as the late 1940s. Uh, yet, uh, Washington still sought to destabilize and break up socialist Yugoslavia, which they succeeded in doing in the 1990s by bombing Serbia, the kingpin of Yugoslavia, into smithereens. Its neighbor to the West, speaking of Italy, was also destabilized. called the 1947 election, where the United States ruffled up its attack in American citizenry to contact its counterparts in the homeland to vote against the communists, which they proceeded to do. Recall as well one of the more chilling episodes of the entire Cold War, when the Christian Democrat Prime Minister Aldo Moro in the 1970s was about to execute the so-called historic compromise and invite the Communist Party into the councils of government. And U.S. imperialism objectively collaborated with ultra-leftists to kidnap him and execute him so he could not carry forth that plan. In fact, there have been a number of movies made about that, including a movies movie, such as uh, The Moral Affair. So when we get to the present, and we see the so-called Brothers of Italy are surging to power, a neo-fascist party, a party that makes apologies for Mussolini. The only folks who should be shocked and surprised are those not paying attention.
0: You know, I did want to ask you that. It's interesting that because, the, you know, the term is used, fascist, neo-fascist, et cetera. Now, recently, and I'm sure you follow this, Ursula von der Leyen, Leyen mentioned, talked about the Italian um, – Elections, basically saying if it goes the wrong way, we have things we can do, such as in Hungary and Poland, we have things that we can do. And I think to myself, that sounds like fascism to me. That sounds like, I mean, and I, I hate to say it, but kind of hearing her say that with that uh, German uh, accent, you know, kind of gives me great pause. But what do you think about the the idea that Ursula von der Leyen is giving us a different um, a, a, a version, a, a, a different flavor of fascism, but when you start saying countries within this block do not have the right or ability to select their own government or we will act, am I wrong in saying that smells like fascism?
2: I would say it's a case of fees falling out, which oftentimes tends to happen. <laughs> they can't agree on how to divide the booty. Uh, I'm no friend of Ursula von der Leyen as close and alert listeners to this program should be well aware of. But at the same time, uh, we should not uh, carry a brief for the brothers of Italy. I mean, look at the Twitter feed of the incoming Prime Minister Maloney. It's been a blatant anti-African campaign, because as you know, Mm -hmm. uh, as a result of the overthrow of Gaddafi in Libya in 2011, you've had many Africans streaming across the Mediterranean into Italy. In fact, uh, she's used some tropes that would make Klansmen in the United States blush, including Africans raping dainty European women, so-called white women, etc. It's a blatantly, violently uh, anti-African, anti-immigrant party. And uh, we should be quite concerned because We know that this is part of a wave. It's a wave that includes the recent Swedish elections uh, that just took place a few weeks ago where you had a neo-fascist party uh, surging into influence. We all know what's happening in the United States of America. And once again, your audience should be made aware that once the United States embarked on this Cold War platform of destabilizing communist parties, destabilizing left-leaning unions, It was inevitable that, like a seesaw, rising would be neo-fascist and ultra-right-wing elements. So Ursula von der Leyen, who was a lieutenant during the Cold War, should basically be told, position, heal thyself, which, of course, is appropriate, given her past profession.
0: And let me ask you this. Looking forward— What do you think happens? I mean, there's thousands of people in the streets in Germany. There's you know, we've seen uh, recently in Brussels, we know the winter time is coming and the people are not going to be happy. And there will for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. Do you think we're looking at more right wing parties? I mean, is this the so so what's coming up for the winter politically and socially as far as the EU?
2: Well, socially, I I regret having to say that many people might be migrating to the sidewalks of St. Petersburg. At least uh, they can stay warm there. Uh, Politically, uh, I'm afraid to say that dark days are ahead. Uh, Those who did not campaign and complain during the Cold War and acquiesce either through omission or commission— these destabilization of left-wing forces, they should not be shocked and surprised that now we're about to undergo a bout of right-wing populism. And I must say, in the United States, there needs to be clarity on this point, because I, I listened to an interview by David Corn of Mother Jones, talking about his new book, American Psychosis, describing today's Republican Party and his surge to the right. But he neglects what I point out in my book on Texas, the counter-revolution of 1836, which is that in the United States, if fascism comes, it will have a mass base. And to act like it will not, and it'll just be some maneuver executed at the top, is fantasy of the worst order.
0: I did want to ask you this, and and this is my thought. I guess I've you know, I don't want to see anybody suffer ever, particularly for the sins of their fathers, right? But when I look at what Colonial Europe has done to... Africa particularly but you know I mean recently they were involved in the Bolivian the overthrow of Bolivia and we can do Spain with South America and all of that I find some level of and I hate to say the, this but there's some karma going on here when they are literally turning themselves into a what we used to call third world country at the behest of the US empire that after all of the sanctioning and making all of these poor brown and black and yellow people suffer all over the world that now that colonialism is visiting itself upon the European continent. Certainly, I don't want any Europeans to suffer, but I, this is not my choice, this is theirs. Your thoughts, Dr. Horn?
2: Well, I understand your sentiment, and certainly uh, there is a bit of chickens coming home to roost with regard to European policies. Uh, look at Italy, for example. It was late to the colonial feast, but it tried to compensate by being ever more vicious In the Horn of Africa, where it sought to colonize today's Somalia and also Abyssinia, meaning Ethiopia, using poison gas against Ethiopia in the 1930s, it was one of the first countries to use airplanes as a weapon of war in 1911 and attacking Libya, North Africa. And as well, it's appropriate for you to draw this comparison with developing countries because One does not have to be an oracle or have a crystal ball to suggest that what's happening in the largest scheme of things is that European nations are making a great leap backward uh, into the era of preceding development, whereas Asian nations in particular are making a great leap forward. And so this is a historic trend. Europe. And its U.S. ally could have avoided this trend trim, trim with saner policies, but they were congenitally, and I choose that term carefully, congenitally unable to do so.
0: And would you say it would be valid to argue that the U.S. empire itself has sacrificed, I mean, they sacrificed the lives of the Ukrainians as cannon fodder, and now basically economically they're doing the same thing with the Europeans? Dr. Horn.
2: Well, they are. And I don't know if I mentioned it before, but it's Barras mentioning right now that the United States feels that it's self-sufficient in energy, although the strategic petroleum reserve has been declining precipitously in light of Mr. Biden unleashing uh, so many barrels months ago to compensate for the Europeans cutting off uh, Russian petroleum, Russian oil. The latest news is that there might be a natural gas crisis in the United States because it's a unitary market and it's difficult for the United States to escape unscathed as Europeans are freezing. And likewise, uh, it appears to be that if you heat your home with oil, that the trucks pulling up to your door within coming weeks will be demanding cash on the barrelhead or some other kind of payment. And credit is going out the door. So, this is a global crisis. It could have been avoided with saner policies, but alas, that seemed to be beyond the ken of these politicians of the North Atlantic Bloc.
0: We've been talking with Dr. Gerald Horn. He's a professor of history at the University of Houston in Texas. He's an author, historian, researcher. He's got a lot of go anywhere that books are sold. Go online. Dr. Horn has a lot of books out. My favorite one that I would recommend, of course, is the one about Paul Robeson. Dr. Gerald Horn, thank you very much for uh, spending a few minutes with us again. You are listening to the Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host Garland Nixon. and more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Foreign Minister Lavrov spoke at the U.N. arguing against the EU's dictatorship and making the case for a change in global order. Also, there was a neo-Nazi attack on a Russian school and referendums are moving forward in eastern Ukraine. Joining us now to discuss these matters, we have Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst. Mark Sloboda, welcome back to The Critical Hour.
3: Garland, thanks for having me. It's always an honor and a pleasure to be on the critical
0: hour. You know, before we get I do want to talk about Lavrov's speech, but before he 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 mentioned it before before we get to it, I, I the protectors of democracy. One being Ursula von der Leyen. Recently, she was speaking about the Italian election, and she said, "If it doesn't go in the right direction, that the EU has ways of addressing it." See Hungary and Poland. For some reason, Mark, that doesn't sound like a person who's defending democracy. I would argue it sounds like the opposite.
3: Uh, yeah, it <laughs> it really does sound um, quite ominous. Um, now, uh, that being said. Uh, Italy did just uh, elect a; it appears a far-right government, Um, and um, Sweden uh, seems uh, well on the way as well. Though there seems to be little complaint from the United States because these far-right governments happen to be pro-NATO and anti-Russia, so it's kosher as far as they're concerned. But I mean, we've already heard EU technocrats, and I mean, uh, Miss von der Leyen is. uh, certainly, uh, you know, that is a perfect description of, of her role in the EU. Um, and, uh, you know, they have, uh, previously, uh, threatened Poland and Hungary with sanctions before because they elected non-liberal governments, right. Uh, mm-hmm. and, and even worse governments who every so occasionally, um, uh, make a foreign policy decision or statement that breaks with the foreign policy orthodoxy coming out of Brussels, often, uh, dictated from the EU, particularly Victor or in that sense. Um, and you know, however much I may not like, um, uh, Italy electing a far right, uh, leader, um, it, it is a kind of a normal consequence when you start to see uh, economics and um, uh, the social order break down, particularly from economic problems in Europe. There is a tendency to fall back on the far right. And we saw this in the 1930s in Europe, of course, Italy, uh, well known. And, you know, um, there are Uh, familial relations between the current leaders uh, uh, of the far-right parties uh, in Italy and and Mussolini evidently. So it shouldn't come as any surprise. Um, uh, uh, This type of far-right populism is bred uh, whenever uh, the promises of uh, capitalist so-called liberal democracies start to fail. Um, that being said, um, you know a technocrat uh, threatening uh, to uh, sanction uh, the uh, country or, or the leaders uh, of these countries when elected because they don't fit with the liberal ideological orthodoxy that dominates the EU technocracy should be disturbing. I mean it's rather common for well over a decade now to talk about the democracy deficit within the EU, and that's mainstream Western academic political literature. But this is taking this type of sentiment, already talked about a decade ago, to all kinds of new levels of, of a, a kind of technocratic authoritarianism. Well,
0: Mark, rather than um, a, de- a, de- a deficit of democracy, I've been making the argument that it's the illusion of democracy in that if we look at what happened, Jeremy Corbyn was running and literally Mike Pompeo came out and said that the Trump administration would act if they thought he was going to win. Jeremy Corbyn came out and said that a member of the British military said they would have to act if de- Jeremy Cor- Corbyn wins. Wouldn't th- Even if the U.S. Empire um, acts in- on the uh, Italian election, wouldn't be the first time they interfered with that election or the Greeks overthrew the government of, um, in 1975, uh, replaced the prime minister in um, Australia. So here's the reality. In a way, it's a good thing happening. The people of Europe are coming face to face with the reality that they've only ever had the illusion of democracy and that the U.S. empire and its flunkies would never allow them to choose anyone that was not, um, you know, christened by the, uh, the sword of the emperor of the United States.
3: I'm old enough to remember uh, when France and the Netherlands, the people, both voted and several other EU countries voted on uh, no further integration uh, of their countries within uh, the EU. And how many times was it again that the Irish people were made to revote on joining the EU (laughs) until they made the right decision? Because I I think it was at least once, maybe twice, right?
0: Absolutely. So let's get to Lavrov's speech. Uh, he's the West exceptionalism has fueled multiple aggressive wars over the past decades. But the world order is changing. The top diplomat said your thoughts. I thought it was a very interesting speech and powerful.
3: Yeah, it was powerful. It was also passionate. I mean, I, I saw some real fire from Lavrov. I mean, and he's certainly getting up there in years. But I think, you know, he is and has been for some time the foremost uh, diplomat uh, in the world. Right, a, a a true statesman and and diplomat of which there is no like, and the uh, you know pale shadow of of Anthony Blinken's uh, you know lies and equivocations just kind of wither under the type of fire that was coming uh, from Lavrov during this speech. He you know he spoke he spoke you know uh, 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 about some common themes that have been spoken uh, before the uh, you know the end of the unipolar world, the birth of the multi. The multi-polar world. He spoke that U.S. exceptionalism has reached nearly godlike levels, and they see themselves as the self-styled masters of the world. Um, they act with impunity. Uh, the laws apply as they dictate them, apply to everyone uh, but themselves. Um, he also spoke about uh, the referendums taking place now in uh, the Russian-held parts of Ukraine uh, that the West uh, and the Regime in Kiev, that is their client state, are so furious about. And he made a, a particularly funny uh, 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 kind of trolling remark to me. And he remarked there that the, the, the people uh, in uh, Donetsk, Lugansk, Kherson, Zaporozhia are uh, essentially only reacting to what uh, <laughs> Zelensky actually uh, recommended for them to do just a A year ago, uh, just over a year ago in last August during an interview, he advised uh, Ukrainian citizens, anyone who feels themselves to be Russian, to go to Russia. Right to mm-hmm. you know, leave the country, get out of the country. That is being said in a country where 20% of the uh, population is ethnic Russian, and and fully half of it are Russian speaking. Uh, particularly in East Ukraine, the dominant sentiment is to see Russians as as brother people and and the borders as as uh, you know artificial and ahistorical. So he said that well. Oh. Going to Russia is what the people of East Ukraine and South Ukraine are doing now. They're just taking their lands on which their ancestors have lived for centuries with them, and that was just like you know you you saw the the uh, the fire emojis yep. uh, going off uh, practically around Lavrov's head as uh, as he was saying that.
0: Yes. And, you know, it's interesting that he did talk about the European Union, and he said, quote, the European Union in principle is becoming, and I would argue with that, becoming, no, I've already been, but an authoritarian, rigid, dictatorial entity. And, you know, here's the way I look at it. This is what the U.S. empire has been. To me, the the EU and NATO are nothing but umbrella organizations that the U.S. empire uses so it can corral the European countries together with the EU. It can take power of attorney for their um, economic uh, decisions. And with the NATO, it takes power of attorney for their foreign policy decisions. But to me, they've been authoritarian towards the world, right? They've been rigid and dictatorial. You, country, must do this. Juan Guaido, you're the president of this country. You, they're going around telling the world everything, what to do. It eventually had to come home and visit itself upon their own constituents. The day the people in the EU started saying, hey, we don't like what's going on, clearly this di- dictatorial authoritarian attitude had to come home, and the chickens had to come home to roost, Mark.
3: Sure. It's even, I mean, now being directed against the EU's own, uh, you know, elected leaders, as we've seen. And if there's one thing that the the EU as a, an organization is has definitely become, it is a machine. One of the primary, not not just a, a consequence, but one of the primary goals of the machine is to destroy the sovereignty and the national identity of European states particularly in western europe and in eastern europe there's there there's an idea that you know the uh, the nationalism is still useful uh, as a, a a buffer you know as a a um, kind of provocation against russia but particularly in western europe national identity is seen as a An antiquated thing, something that needs to to go away. And however much we can question the process, bloody processes over a century that led to the formation of the nation states, they have them now. And the fact that the EU is doing everything possible to reduce them, and to reduce the sovereignty of uh, you know the leaders of these nation states uh, in favor of their own, uh, you know, uh, technic- technocracy, uh, you know, uh, where they want all the decisions on foreign policy and, and at state level made in Brussels. Uh, you know, it it's something that should be concerning the people of Europe. But, you know, I, I think there's a popular sentiment there that as long as they get visa-free travel, they they, they seem to ignore everything else that is going on.
0: Yeah, food is going to be a problem real shortly soon too. Last but not least, I did want to ask you about the response. Or, you know, in the West, it's oh, uh, they the the all of the Russians are up in arms and angry and pushing back against the mobilization. Uh, we got about uh, two minutes. What's happening with the mobilization? What do we need to know?
3: Yeah, I mean, there certainly is a counter reaction from a. a, a, a unquestionably a uh, small number of uh, citizens uh, who are against the mobilization. It seems that the majority of those protesting are not even those being called up. And a lot of people are fleeing uh, the country, uh, you know, I mean, a lot, meaning, you know, point one of the population and so on. Uh, and it is being blown out of all proportion and it has to be known that most of those people are leaving are not people who have received orders to mobilize because they haven't served in the military. They're the same liberals who left originally, um, in February when Russia launched its intervention because they feared a mobilization and then crept back to the country because it turns out that life in Tbilisi and Yerevan and where it wasn't all that it was cracked up to be. Um, and, uh, now... Uh, that the mobilization is happening again, even though they're not called up, there's all these kinds of rumors, oh that it's actually going to be a million people and everyone is being taken and they're, they're, they're leaving again. Uh, so, um, it, again, it's something that is uh, taken out of context and being blown out of all proportion. I'm old enough to remember when the U S called up their reserves, which is what is going on in Russia when, uh, for the invasion, for the occupations of Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and I remember that almost immediately there were some at least 5,500 deserters, people fleeing the U.S. and and applying for asylum in Canada and the EU. That there were in total, uh, you know, some 20,000 desertions by 2014. Desertion uh, rate had crept up by some 80 percent. Um, and that millions of people were protesting against the U.S. Um, uh, invasion. Oh, I'm sorry, intervention uh, in Iraq uh, all across the United States and across much of the Western world. But you know, there's a 15-minute memory, and it's different when we do it, right? I mean, that's that's the, the way the Western media is presenting this.
0: All righty. Well, we've been talking with Mark Sloboda. He's a Moscow-based international relations security analyst, and we've learned a lot. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back, and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. China's air power may be surpassing that of the United States in the Pacific region. Also, China again warns that the U.S. is sending dangerous signals regarding Taiwan. Joining us now to discuss this and more, we have K.J. No. He's an activist, writer and teacher and a friend of the show. K.J., welcome back to the Critical Hour.
4: Thank you. Pleasure to be with you.
0: Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi told Secretary of State Antony Blinken on the sidelines of the UN General Assembly on Friday that the U.S. is sending very wrong, dangerous signals on the issue of Taiwan. The conversation between the two diplomats was focused on Taiwan and came after President Biden said the U.S. would defend the island in the event of a Chinese attack, marking the fourth time he's made that pledge as president. Your thoughts, KJ?
4: Well, you know, the fourth time he's made that pledge, right? How many times do you get to say that you're going to get militarily involved and walk that back? It's not possible anymore. It's clear to the Chinese that the U.S. has completely discarded the one China policy. When you discard the one China policy, you're saying that you do not want diplomatic relations with China and that you are essentially sending a message that you are preparing uh, Taiwan for uh, independence. That is a trigger on the Chinese side for any intervention that they deem necessary. So, yes, uh, I don't think that the U.S. can keep this pretense up anymore. What it needs to do, if it wants to, if it's serious about de-escalating, is it needs to send a direct message to the authorities on Taiwan Island but they will not tolerate separatism. And they need to stop sending high-level delegations to Taiwan Island and supporting them with military airlift. I think that uh, actions speak louder than words. And so this is what needs to happen. And uh, there's no amount of, um, you know, backtracking, salami slicing, or uh, double speaking, which will get them out of this pickle, unless they actually do want a war.
0: You know, I also think this because here's what's interesting. You know, the, the, the incident happened with Nancy Pelosi and everybody thought, OK, that's it. There's going to be the war the next day. And then other things happen. I've come to the conclusion that Westerners, they expect something to happen one moment and then the next, you know, this happens and immediately there's a reaction from China. I tend to think that Westerners do not understand China's perspective on their timeline. That, for instance, they may be looking at it and saying, "Okay, we could act. Let's uh, wait through the winter and see how things and see if the U.S.'s uh, coalition falls apart in um, in Europe. I mean, they could be taking other factors. I just think that looking at it through the U.S. lens, you expect China to act right away. But looking at it from an Asian uh, 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 cultural uh, uh, perspective, there's not the rush that they have to grab Taiwan tomorrow. At any rate, your thoughts on all of that?
4: Well, you know, the the, the Chinese have said this explicitly. They said that they want peaceful reunification uh, of Taiwan with the mainland. And they said that it will be a hundred-year project, not a five-year project, not a two-year project, not a next-year project. They said it would be a hundred-year project. So, yes, they have tremendous patience. Time is on their side. And they also understand that, you know, that uh, the longer they wait, Uh, the more advantageous things are for them. It is the U.S. with people like Hal Brand saying that, you know, war needs to happen immediately because China is going to start a war immediately. Same thing with Albridge Colby, who says that, you know, China is on this roll and it's, you know, it's going to start this domino uh, with Taiwan. It's the U.S. which is in a hurry. China is taking its own good time.
0: Another article, um, Global Times, U.S. cannot force politics on technology to coerce de- decoupling. One of the things that we see now is the U.S. is stepping up its, you know, before it was Huawei, but it's stepping up its attempt to try to cut China and Russia off from technology, from various chips and things of that nature. Your thoughts on that?
4: Well, it's not going to work because, as you've said many times before, It's very, very hard to enclose a supply chain, and it's even harder to enclose knowledge. But what the U.S. is effectively doing is it's driving out uh, Chinese scientists and engineers uh, and making them go to China, which has exactly the opposite effect that the U.S. wants. According to the Wall Street Journal, and this is uh, on September 22nd, about 1,400 U.S.-trained Chinese scientists dropped their U.S. academic or corporate affiliations and went to China. That's a 22 percent drop from the previous year. And at the same time, you know, another interesting statistic is that Physics World, a magazine uh, on physics, says that the quality of China's scientific research output has now exceeded that of the United States, not simply in terms of quantity but in terms of quality. So China is moving ahead. It's building its technological resources through its human capacity, as well as the simple fact that it knows, and the U.S. should understand this too, is the supply chain is so deeply intertwined, you cannot effectively uh, extricate or expel China from a global supply chain. It's as if you were You know, uh, a conjoined twin and you wanted to, you know, expel your conjoined twin, uh, detach your conjoined twin, and you forget that the other twin has the brain and the heart.
0: Here's the other part, too. You know, 2014, the U.S. started all of these massive sanctions on Russia's, but Russia, but one of the effects it had was it caused Russia to recognize that they needed to produce a lot of things on, the, on their own and to be prepared for future sanctions. And it seems that they've done a fairly good job. I, I, uh, let me change that. They've done an A-plus job because they have more sanctions than any country in history, and their economy seems to be doing strong. The only thing that's affecting them is, like right now, the price of oil, which is affecting everyone who—all the oil-producing countries and— Non oil producing countries. But at any rate, moving forward, the issue of trying to stop China from getting various technological items that they need, doesn't that create an environment where they say, we better start making all of that stuff so within four or five years, there's nothing you can cut us off from?
4: That's exactly what's going to happen. And it's already happening. I mean, first, there's a kind of. China has a term for this. They call it the dual circulation. That is. There's an external circulation where they do a trade with the external world. And then there's an internal circulation where they see themselves largely as self-contained. I mean, this is uh, North Korea's Chuche project writ large, you know, is scaled up a hundred times. So they're completely capable of doing that as well. And so both of these ideas, this idea that somehow you can bring China to heel, by enclosing, by encircling, by uh, containing it, by uh, decoupling from it. All of these things are a fool's errand. Russia has shown proof of concept. And the fact is that the SCO holds almost the entirety of the centrality of the Eurasian continent as the world island within themselves. They can trade, they can uh, uh, produce, they can exchange, they can build infrastructure together, or uh, even a China by itself or China and Russia by themselves are largely capable of being self-sustaining. I think it's very foolish to think that the countries outside of the world island can force the countries within the world island with the most resources, the greatest population, and most of the world's wealth that they think that they can uh, force their will uh, on these countries.
0: Asia Times reports China may now have air superiority over the U.S. and Pacific. Aging and fewer U.S. fighters flown by the undertrained pilots have likely already fallen behind China's rapid fleet expansion. My immediate thought is uh, I'm suspicious that that's going to be used as an excuse to build and buy more war material. But the other side of it is this. It's a whole lot cheaper to build a defensive military than it is to build up a military to have an encounter with someone who's 7000 miles from your home. It's a lot cheaper. And that if there's some kind of an arms race, the U.S. versus China, that we're going to go broke before they do, because, well, number one, we're going broke anyway. But number two, they're building it up at home. Your thoughts.
4: Absolutely. So, you know, Chinese, uh, as I said, you know, Chinese do some of the best research on the planet uh, in in technology and science. Uh, just recently, it's been shown that they' they've uh, nudged ahead of the United States. Uh, they build their own jet fighters, uh, top quality jet fighters. Uh, and uh, let's remember once again that three hundred and fifty thousand separate components go into a single jet fighter, a large percentage of which are made, manufactured in China. The U.S. is not going to be able to catch up with China if it seeks to, once again, extract China from its supply chain. So purely on an industrial manufacturing, military manufacturing standpoint, China is pulling ahead. And there are people like Elbridge Colby who acknowledge this. They understand that the U.S. cannot fight an arms race with China because China has economic Superiority. It has the incredible economic manufacturing capacity and infrastructure that cannot be matched. And then the other point you make is also really, really important. The simple fact is that China is developing its militarily asymmetrically. It's building its military primarily for one purpose, which is defensive against the United States. It's asymmetric defensive capacity, what the U.S. sometimes likes to call A2AD. But essentially, China is working, as we said, uh, like Bruce Lee. It's not somebody who's practicing, uh, you know, uh, 10,000 kicks. It's practicing one kick 10,000 times. That is defense of the Chinese little waters, including Taiwan. And there it has the advantage. And the other piece is refueling. To refuel a jet from 6, uh, 5, 2,000, 3,000 miles away is a complex uh, logistical task, whereas China is, is just right uh, across the ocean, uh, 80 miles away from any potential uh, areas of combat.
0: Right. So the U.S. is once again caught defending Taiwan on China's border, which is an expensive proposition under normal circumstances. But when you're going into a deep economic recession, it becomes something that the people of the country aren't going to stand much for. K.J. Noh is an activist, a writer, a teacher and a friend of the show. Thank you very much, K.J. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nix. And more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The U.S. seems to be heavily involved in protests in Iran, attempting to manipulate social unrest. Also, Iraq will soon hold another round of elections and German broadcaster Deutsche Welle demands allegiance to Israel for all employees. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Laith Marouf. Laith is a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. Laith, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you for having me. And uh, Op-Ed News reports in its code of conduct, Deutsche Welle says that it stands for freedom, democracy and human rights, which it describes as being a cornerstones of journalistic and development message and profile promoting itself as a progressive organization the broadcaster adds we advocate the values of freedom and wherever we are take independent and clear positions especially against any and all kinds of discrimination i could go on and on and on but the bottom line is right now uh they're saying if you don't uh openly support israel you can't work for us Latham Maruf, your thoughts on this
5: Oh, this is a global trend within the imperial uh, domains uh, where uh, everybody's going to be asked for a pledge of loyalty, of uh, an oath of loyalty to the Zionist ideology and the uh, colony of apartheid uh, that uh, it's built uh, on the ethnic uh, genocide of uh, Palestinians and the looting of their lands. So this is, as we see now. Uh, For the first time, openly a a national broadcaster of one of the uh, core states within the imperial order, Germany, saying that they will refuse any uh, criticism of the state of Israel on air. This has already been happening all across the national broadcasters in Canada, uh, the UK, France, the United States, but it hasn't been written outright like this. And uh, of course, your listeners may remember the case of uh, my me being erased virtually uh, at order of the United States uh, Congress and the Canadian Parliament uh, a, a week and a half ago now. And uh, it was using the nefarious and purposefully misleading uh, definition of anti-Semitism that is uh, written by the International Holocaust. Remembrance Alliance, uh, where it makes it that criticism of Zionism, the genocidal political ideology uh, based on Jewish supremacy, and uh, the the apartheid state of Israel makes that um, to be considered anti-Jewish and purposefully confuses it. Uh, so we're we're you know the everybody who is a lover of free speech and uh, freedom of the media and freedom of thought. And, and freedom of uh, allegiance to, to political ideologies um, and religions uh, must fight this now globally. It is a priority, not only for people who are working on Palestine, because as we see now, that this is bleeding into the war on Russia and we're seeing uh, pledges of allegiance being uh, asked of anybody on the uh, position of uh, war against Russia that could lead us to uh, World War III.
0: One of the things I think too is, you know, it's the old me think the lady doth protest too much. Now to me, when I see the um, this you know, almost uh, panic for uh, support for Israel, almost this please everybody no matter what, this like authoritarian push against people, you have to support Israel it only leads me to believe that that is born out of a fear and a real- realization that people are starting to push back against the unacceptable um, treatment of the Palestinians and now that this is actually born of fear and it's born of, of pushback and people who are now starting to say, Say we need justice, and, and uh, here your thoughts.
5: Yeah, it's hilarious. One of the tweets that they uh, that they put forward as uh, um, you know defines me as anti Jewish, and they kept on repeating it over and over and over. in all the media, including in the in the congressional uh, hearing that happened, was me calling them loudmouths um, and that they'll be out of job uh, very soon when there is no uh, colony left because Israel is at its end. This is a true fact. Uh, so, what we saw of them screaming so loud about my tweets um, and bringing it all the way to the Senate of the Empire uh, shows that they are loudmouthed. And I'm telling you, when you watch the uh, executives of Twitter and others uh, taking these stupid questions from these, uh, uh, you know, insanely Jewish supremacist members of Parliament of Canada and, and other uh, colonies of the en- English order. Uh, you, you see these executives and they are having the same reaction that everybody was having, seeing how much uh, media space they took to condemn me. Ah, uh, with a a a Twitter account with five thousand followers, um, you know everybody was. This is an overkill, of course, and uh, the way they were screaming is just discrediting them, and of course, as we see, they're they're losing the plot. They don't know what to do, and they're taking actions that are uh, damaging the whole society to to silence me, Leith Maruf. Now uh, it is normal for the American Congress and the Parliament of Canada to order social media uh, companies to close accounts at whim of uh, the state without any trial, without any, uh, you know, uh, minimums of natural justice.
0: Wow. Well, let's move forward. And this is an important story. And that is um, the, uh, the death of Masa Amini. She's a 22-year-old Iranian woman. She died in police custody last week. There are some protests, but clearly it appears that the U.S. empire is getting involved, is sparking the protest. We do know that the U.S. Uh, has made some overt moves, basically saying, oh, we've got to provide um, uh, Internet access for these people so we can expand the protests, et cetera, et cetera. So the U.S. is up to its old tricks. Here's the only thing I would say. I'm a black person. When the U.S. starts complaining about people dying in police custody, I start raising an eyebrow like, oh, really, you're concerned about that? Although, at least in the U.S., they don't wait till they get in custody. They shoot them before they even get in custody and just, you know, deal with the body. But I guess, you know, anyway, your thoughts on all of this, Latham Arouf? I mean,
5: of course, we see the hypocrisy. And, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the issue of the numbers of deaths. Uh, specifically of black Americans uh, in custody and in the process of being you know treated by the supposed uh, police force um, and that shows, of course, you know the United States has the highest uh, number of uh, incarcerated people in the world in history of humanity twenty five percent of the population of uh, imprisoned people in the world. now the story of this woman. Uh, the video is out there for everybody to see what had happened. Uh, she had uh, cancer and she had uh, medical problems. She went to the police station as she's waiting in the waiting room. She has a, a brain aneurysm and she, and she collapses. And the video is, is clear. There was no uh, abuse from uh, the police of Iran. That doesn't mean that uh, women should be uh, you know, asked about their... Uh, clothing, and you know, we see the opposite uh, extreme of that in France, where women are, and in Quebec, here in in Canada, where women are banned from uh, wearing the hijab, uh, working in any official government agency, um, even in schooling here in Quebec. So there the the issue of um, men, and specifically men in power in governments. Uh, deciding what women uh, wear is a problem globally. There's nothing uh, specifically uh, different or evil in, in the situation in Iran. And this story being played out in such ways uh, in the Western media and the uh, being broadcasted into the country and all these militias that are Uh, being moved through the border with uh, uh, Iraq uh, by the Americans. It's uh, exaggerating the reality. There's been millions of people in Iran out in the streets in the last few days uh, demonstrating against uh, any violent uh, attacks on the state uh, and for peace and calm. Um, And as we see, Iran just bombed a few sites of uh, Kurdish militias in Iraq in Kurdistan, Iraq uh, in the last 24 hours, and uh, they are claiming that the United States is moving some of their assets, the Kurdish assets in the northeast of Iran uh, through the border with uh, Iraq.
0: Next article, is I think, is interesting, and we definitely need to talk about it. I don't know what the heck's going to happen in Iraq, and it seems to me that the U.S. is just, um, you know, the influence there is just too de- destabilizing. The Western influence is extremely destabilizing. But they have agreed to early le- uh, early elections in Iraq to fulfill Sadr's uh, demands, according to thecradle.com. Iraqi political factions have failed for nearly a year to form a government. Again, I look at the dysfunction of Iraq, but I think to myself— They've been attacked and invaded by the U.S. twice. And now the U.S. basically, here's what I remember. I remember an election that was like 140 or something to nothing. It was a, uni, it was a, an, uh, um, a unanimous election by the Iraqi parliament to tell the United States, you got to leave. And the U.S. sent back a, a letter that said, we look forward to being here a long time. So how can they really have a functioning government if they're illegally occupied by the U.S. and the U.S. refuses to leave? Your thoughts
5: yes, of course, this is the delusion that you th- people thinking that there could be a democratic election under occupation and not only under occupation but also under a constitution written by the supreme leader of Iraq at the time, uh, Bremer, uh, you know so the American appointed uh, governor of Iraq and this this constitution is written in ways uh, that uh, took a country that was a secular state, uh, with equality for all uh, religions and ethnicities and genders in, in the population and divided it onto a uh, ethnic state uh, that has constitutional limitations on people according to their religion and according to their ethnic background um, on, on the same style that the French did Lebanon in a way that makes it ungovernable. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, a, in a way that allows uh, the United States to, and its corporations to continue to loot uh, the resources of Iraq uh, while the chaos continues. And this is a reality. So there will be no democracy in Iraq until the occupation is kicked out and a new constitution is enacted that uh, makes the state uh, be representative of all citizens no matter what their background is.
0: And also, as I see it, the U.S. uses Iraq as a hub for its activities. I mean, I see them stealing oil from Syria and taking that across the border. You know, it's like— Uh, Donald Trump recently said that he wouldn't have given up Bagram Air Force Base because that has to be used to spy on China. So I think Iraq is used the U.S. um, empire just sees other countries as places that it can use as necessary. And I think they just see Iraq as, you know, we can use that to harass other countries. They literally they have Israeli Mossad bases in Iraq that the Iraqis don't have any authority over. We got uh, two minutes.
5: Oh, yeah, the whole border with Turkey and the whole region of Kurdistan in the north is just a, a hub of uh, intelligence forces globally. And uh, it's out of the control of the state. Uh, nobody knows where the resources of uh, Kurdistan oil has went in the last, uh, you know, 20 years since the war on Iraq, almost 20 years now. So this is the reality. It's uh, Iraq will continue to be a... You know, failed state and a no man's land and a killing field until the imperial uh, occupation is 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 expelled and a state is reformed in a in a way. But look, we're we're coming to the hundred years since uh, the Saakashvili agreement that cut off all these lands uh, in the Greater Syria region, the Fertile Crescent, and the uh confrontations that we see that are ahead in the horizon that we just don't know which one is going to come out in Syria, in Iraq, in uh, Lebanon, in Palestine. Uh, the result of them uh, will be a a change of all these uh, borders that we have seen since World War one. Um, and uh, any anything less than that will will mean a continuation of this chaos for another hundred years.
0: We've been talking with Laith Marouf. He's a broadcaster and journalist based in Beirut, Lebanon. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Presidential hopefuls Lula de Silva and Jair Bolsonaro enter their final week before the elections are held. Many in Brazil fear a Bolsonaro coup attempt. Joining us now to discuss this, we have Norman O. Richmond. Norman's a producer and host of Diasporic Music on BlackPower96.org. Norman, welcome back. I mean, welcome. Hey, this is your first time. So welcome to The Critical Hour here in Washington, D.C
6: get to quote Dr. Horn. thanks for inviting me.
0: <laughs> oh, yes. So let's start here. Your thoughts. or Let's start here. You know, one of the things before we even get into the election, one of the things that we've heard a lot is, Will Bolsonaro, if he loses, things are starting to look bleak for old Bolsonaro. If he loses, will he, you know, take it setting down? Will he try some kind of extra uh, democratic uh, coup attempt? Or you know, we hear all these things floating around. Your thoughts on on that particular angle of this uh, this, this subject?
6: Well, I think that uh, Bolsonaro would would, would would do anything. There is a swing to the right worldwide. And I think that you know many forces on the right basically think uh, that God is on their side—God, Allah, Ajah, whoever you, whatever you refer to the higher, higher, high, higher power as—and I think that uh, he might do anything because he is definitely the 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 trump of, of the tropics, and uh, you know he thinks that he can do whatever he wants to do.
0: It certainly appears that, you know, what I've seen, my experience in watching elections is, you know, when a person doesn't want somebody to steal it, basically they got to beat them so bad they can't steal it. It looks as though even if the Bolsonaro camp had any thoughts of, you know, trying some nefarious deeds, it looks as though Lula da Silva is distancing himself to a point where once you're down, you know, 15 or 20 points, it's hard to make any kind of case. Your thoughts on— the De Silva actually widening his victory. You know, generally, when you get close to an election, the polls get closer. They're actually widening with De Silva. What do you think about that? And what do you think is causing that?
6: Well, I think uh, uh, Lula De Silva has a track record of of, of bringing uh, domestically. I mean, I think the people of, of, of Brazil respond to him because he has, you know, brought uh, – uh, like Amilcar Cabral would say, you know, people are not fighting for the ideas in anybody's head. They're fighting for basically goods and services. And uh, Lula da de Silva delivered goods and services to the oppressed, uh, to the working people, and the and the peasantry of, of, of Brazil. And on the international level, I think uh, you know he he received the support of of African people in the Western Hemisphere and African people in uh, on the continent and oppressed humanity in in general.
0: So your thoughts on the outcome. What happens in Brazil? Does Lula da Silva win? Does he get 50 percent and win the, win in the first round? What are your what are your what are your, what are your predictions? Because I think right now it's clear to me that uh, I don't see an avenue, a path to victory for for uh, B- uh, Bolsonaro. But the, I think the question is, will da Silva get the 50 percent? And if he gets it, you know, that's kind of a mandate. What does that mean?
6: Well, I'm hoping and uh, I'm a secular person. But uh, between you and me, I'm praying
0: that,
6: that he
0: uh, prevails. You know, one of the things, I have a, a nephew that uh, he got out of college. He actually graduated from Howard University right here in, 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 uh, in Washington, D.C., with a degree in um, journalism. And he lived in Brazil. He met, went to live in Brazil for five years. And I didn't know much about it. But what I found out was the issue of racism is major in Brazil that the darker skin people in in Brazil don't get the same you know fair treatment that the lighter skin get your thoughts do you are you familiar with that dynamic and what do you think about it
6: well i think wherever we are on the planet earth as african people we are on the bottom or you know just above the uh, native people in whatever ever country they, they 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 took us to and i think that uh you know uh the the portuguese colonized uh, Brazil and the uh, Portugal, Port- Portuguese were the first
7: uh,
6: Europeans out of the box. And, uh, you know, the, the, the there is an element of, of uh, let me put it this way, there is a cracker element among the Portuguese people. And there's also a revolutionary element because it was the, uh, you know, they brought down the, uh, the, uh, the fascists in Brazil and that helped. Not that didn't, that didn't cause the, uh, you know, the, the movements to, to su- succeed in Angola, Mozambique, Guinea-Bissau. Uh, but it did, it, it did, it, 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 it did help. And I think that it was Amilcar Cabral that says that, you know, the, the, you know they couldn't. They couldn't even produce a toy airplane, let, let alone a real airplane. And if it wasn't for the the Western, the imperialists, you know, the U.S. imperialists, the British imperialists, the French, and, and, and whatever the little Portuguese, uh, uh, well, they were, they, were, they were imperialists. They were the first ones out of the out of, out of the block in terms of the slave trade. But if it wasn't for you know, uh, Western imperialism supporting the Portuguese that, you know, the Portuguese, they wouldn't have any, they couldn't do anything.
0: Your thoughts on, you know, there seems to be a sea change in South America. There seems to be revolutionary change going on in South America. And the countries that have held up over the course of the years, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and of course Cuba, um, seem to be growing. Your thoughts on how the change in South America, and particularly in Cuba, I mean, excuse me, particularly in this Um, Brazil, which being, I think, like the, what is it, the fifth largest and fifth most populated country on earth, how that will will affect, like, for instance, and and this is very important to me near and dear to my heart, and that is the Cubans, because uh, like when Chavez was in power, he was able to help Cuba. Some of these other countries were able to help Cuba. How do you think what's going on in South America affects the Cuban plight, shall we say?
6: I I personally, it's very thing You know, some people talk about socialism in one country, and we used to have a joke in Detroit where, somebody, when someone was real selfish, we talked about they believed in socialism in one man or one woman. But uh, you know, you need uh, uh, we need Cuba needs support from 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 not only African people but oppressed people. Period, and uh, it's very very. Very, very dangerous to, to, to be out there all alone. But I think that there is a, a progressive element in in, in 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 most countries, and it's just a question of uh, who will will reveal. I don't have a, a, a crystal ball because, you know, we're in a, we are in, in living in a world now where you know. Uh, I think the temptations had the a, a song where Melvin said, will the, will the Russians push the button? And, you know, it's uh, I'm not into that. Uh, you, know, I, uh, you know, Biden could push a button, you know.
0: Bottom line is we don't, we don't want any buttons to get pushed. <laughs> Everybody's concerned. We've got the China-Taiwan issue going on. We've got, you know, any number of things that are presenting uh, existential threat, shall we say.
6: Oh, no, I uh I concur with what you just said, sir.
0: <laughs> uh, now, something I want to ask you about: drink, dance, and eat—that's what it says on their website. Interesting, and that is the Lula Lounge in uh, Toronto. You were telling me you know about a little bit about the—you know—you know somewhat about the Lula Lounge. What do we need to know about the Lula Lounge, particularly in, in light of what's going on in um, in in uh, Brazil?
6: Well, a Lula Lounge. I believe it might. I don't. I, I don't know if it was named after uh, after a uh, uh, Lula, but we always said that we uh, it was named after Lula da Silva. But it is a hot spot. A lot of salt. lot of salsa. A lot of reggae. A uh, lot of R and B. Good food. Oh my goodness! They have you know great food. Good good service. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm trying to get some, get some
0: freebies here. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, we're good. today. It's named after Lula today. So it, it appears to me. Let me ask you this. I know that um, Toronto. You're in Toronto. I know that Toronto. Last time I checked, I think like half of the people in Toronto were born in another country. Is there a heavy Brazilian population in Toronto? Yes,
5: uh.
6: yes, there are. Yes, there, yes, there is. <laughs> yes. Uh, Toronto is. It's, it's, I guess it's like London or like. Uh, it's one of the most uh, diverse cities on, on 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 the planet Earth. You know, I know people from Barbados, Jamaica, from from Brazil, Angola, mm-hmm. Cape Verde. Oh, it's 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 it, it's ridiculous in terms of I can pick up my phone book and I can call somebody right now from Zimbabwe. Or someone from Eritrea. It's uh, my 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 son's uh is 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 married to uh, eritrean sister so it's we are it's a it's a mix up mix up up here
0: do you think how does that affect the political conversation there you know how does that expect, affect the you know the kind of the intellectual discussion about world politics
6: well i think that the people of uh, the the elders and the not so elder people are many of, of of us are still tribalistic, mm-hmm. but I think that the younger folks are uh, face police brutality, and police brutality in Toronto, Canada, is vicious. Really, and uh, they are uh, education. The educational system is is good, but you know our people are. Uh, on the bottom, along, quiet, quiet as kept. I think even the por- the Portuguese might be in in worse shape than the African uh, children. And you know, of course, the, the 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 people on the very bottom are the first what the, what they call the First Nations people, or or the native, uh, or the the so-called Indians. Uh, and uh, it's, it's it's not it's it's not. I I, I can't uh, to be honest. If I'm going to be honest if you want me to be honest a lie it's a it's a pretty it, it, it's it's not that it's 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 not as well as as people when they think about toronto they think mm-hmm. this is heaven you know this is right. where the 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 uh enslaved africans ran from uh uh from from the south and you know the, the and, and, you know the uh in nova scotia they 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 uh they brought the rebellious maroons out of jamaica they also brought barbadians and people to Nova Scotia, and it was so bad there that black people in Nova Scotia, they fled, they went back to Sierra Leone, and you can read read about that in George Padmore's book, Pan-Africanism or Communism.
0: Wow. And uh, lastly, uh, you know, from the perspective of South America, just your thoughts. we got about a minute and a half on the leftward shift, on the revolutionary shift that seems to be going on all throughout Latin America, away from the old Monroe Doctrine. we got about a minute and a half. Your thoughts?
6: Well, the Monroe Doctrine is, uh, I guess that's the whole question of white is right and white, you know, white is... uh, if you're white, let me see what, is, what do they say? If you if you if if you're white, you're all right. If you're black, get back. If you're brown, hang around. You know, <laughs> I think those days are uh, they're, they're, they're they they are uh, it's it's uh, U.S. imperialism is uh is on it's, it's on its way out. But like I say, you know, the the problem that we have is as a human family is uh you know will someone push that button? If 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 no one pushed. I think that the, uh, for lack of a better term, the Bandan forces, you know, the people of color. Right. Yeah. Uh, we uh, we are we shall we will we will prevail. We We're shall right. conquer without a doubt, as uh, I can't say it in Swahili like like <laughs> Imam Jamil Alameen used to say. I know that Bill of is the last term, but uh, yeah, we shall conquer without a doubt.
0: Thank you very much. We've been talking with Norman O. Richmond. He's a producer and host of Diasporic Music on BlackPower96.org. You're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. There's more on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. Mint Press News has exposed a number of propaganda operations aimed at pushing pro West narratives. Also, we discussed the mysterious presence of Ray Epps at the January 6th protest and the failure of the FBI to provide information relative to this shady figure's connection to the agency. Joining us now, Steve Porkinen is a national organi- organi- organizer for Action for Assange and host of Slow News Day on Rockfin.com. That's R O K F I N.com. Slow News Day. Steve Boykinen, it's not a slow news day. We want to know what the heck's going on with Ray Epps. Who's this Ray Epps guy, and what do we need to know about him, Steve? Ray
7: Epps is a figure that, that sort of emerged in the independent media. Um, about mid-summer last year As more and more of the footage of January 6th was being analyzed by people who were on the ground there, um, including myself. There was uh, a couple of different places that you could contribute footage to. Um, and then there's a number of people who have their footage stolen outright. Uh <laughs> but um after months of pouring through this, it became very, very obvious to some folks who work for an outlet called Revolver Magazine that uh there was a connection between people being directed to and into the Capitol and being encouraged to storm the Capitol, Rayaps, uh some, uh, intelligence, former, or at least former military background. Um, and the fact that Ray Epps had been at least at one point on the FBI's most wanted list, uh, before wanting to be questioned about what happened to January 6th, he was uh, mysteriously removed, but starting about midsummer, more information started to trickle out about this, including a number of videos uh, that showed Ray Ups shouting at people, um, in the middle of a crowd. And by the way, I, I was in DC that week. Uh, we were there with Force the Vote. We had Action for Assange was there. Uh, we did events around the, the verdict, um, uh, the, the actual reading of Julian's verdict, the original no extradition one that mm-hmm. subsequently got overturned. Um, so we were there for that when we found out a few weeks before that the stop the steel rally was taking place, I immediately rebooked my flight. I was like, Oh, this is going to be nuts. I got to stick around for it. And it was in the night before, uh, Ray Heps had been out in the street, people marching all day, all night, uh, telling people, no, we got to take it a step further. We got to go in. We got to do this. We got to do that. Uh, there, there's a number of, uh, number of different times this video has been played for, I think, almost a year now, um, of him flat out encouraging people to, directing people to the Capitol, whispering to and directing people right before the, uh, the fences were breached, and seem to be coordinating at very advantageous points throughout directing and placing and pointing people.
0: Let me ask you this. This guy's in the middle of the crowd, the whole he's in the middle of this thing and he's yelling to people, you know, we got to move forward. We got to go in. He's really in to say this guy is inciting is it is an understatement. OK, but I'm watching these things the other day where Congress members are literally asking the FBI, do you know, Ray Epps, do you know this? Do you, were you, did you have people? At literally asking rep- – these are members of Congress, members of the Senate, saying to the FBI, uh, did you have – was the FBI involved in this? And they're like, I can't answer that. Who's this guy, Ray Epps? Is he on your payroll? It uh, you, you can't answer that.
3: Uh, are you
7: familiar with this? Yes, I am. And, Garland, it's a sad day when Ted Cruz comes out looking like a mental giant. It, it is it, there. I, I can't remember the other congressman. It was a Howley. Is that who was uh, grilling? The Josh Howley, maybe? I'm not sure. Yeah, I, I can't remember off the top of my head. But I mean, it's the the same story, whether it was uh, the and one of them. The woman was one of the people who was in charge of the investigation. Or at least in charge of the department in charge of the investigation. And she's just sitting there going, I, I you know, I mean, I. It is the I I guess one of the the most typical responses from the FBI when uh when they know they're caught, when they know they're doing something wrong, and when they want to duck out of it. And unfortunately, we have a very, very compliant Congress when it comes to giving them a pass.
0: Well, let me ask you this. So Congress is literally asked I mean the FBI is literally asked do you know Ray Epps? Is he one of your guys? Is he on your payroll? Whatever the case. And they're like, uh, we can't answer this question. They're literally asked, did you have people involved in leading and operating in this January 6th thing? And they're like, we can't answer this question. Steve, that answers the question. I mean, it's uh, if somebody said to me, Garland, were you involved in the murder of Abraham Lincoln? And that's an easy one. Nope. I wouldn't be like, uh, I can't answer that question. When you can't answer a question about something like that. I think you've answered the question, Steve.
7: Oh, absolutely. And it's not just, it's not just Ray ups. There's, I believe at this point, bare minimum, 26 uh, protected witnesses involved with January 6th, um, including leadership and uh, at least the proud boys, if not the oath keepers and three percenters, recent articles have come out about how, uh, Leadership positions and a number of other positions within the Oath Keepers all belong to law enforcement. It, I, again, on the ground, <laughs> on the ground that day, if you would have asked me if there was going to be some kind of, you know, government overthrow or what, I would have laughed at you. Everybody that was there by the ellipse was hanging out like it was lame, day drunk Woodstock. <laughs> it it was, you know, I mean, it wasn't a revolution. Is what I'm trying to get at. Um, And all of the crazy stuff happened before anybody who was at the ellipse got up to the Capitol. So everybody that was doing any of the gate crashing had already left and already gone up there. So to paint it as a reflection of the entire crowd, I think from a personal observational standpoint, disingenuous. It looked like an operation to me.
0: Here's how I can tell there's something fishy. Here's one of the things that I, I, when I want to know that there's something rotten in Denmark, here's what I do. I go to Google, and whatever it is, I Google it and check Google News. Here's here here's what we find on when I when I Google Ray Epps on, on news. Trump shares barrage of QAnon content and other conspiracy theories on True Social. Trump uh, embraces far right conspiracy theories. Shared a post about Ray Epps. How Ray Epps became the victim of a January six conspiracy theory. Ray Epps' January six conspiracy theory undercut, undercut by new evidence. Every single one of those says it's a crazy conspiracy theory. That tells Garland Nixon that it's dead out true. I, I mean, that's just, I may be wrong, but that's the way I feel, Steve.
7: I, h- historically, um, you, you know, uh, the <laughs> number of accuracy points is on your side. Going by that metric, historically, when, when people rush to say this is all just a bunch of nonsense, you may as well wear rubber pants. This is cuckoo bird stuff. Uh, you find out six to 12 months later. Oh, yeah, those guys were right. No, oh, yeah. And we're living through it right now. We're even living through it. every time another Nazi pops up in Ukraine, you know, we, <laughs> we get another one in the column.
0: Oh, here's this. Here's an article. Now, listen to this. The feds prepare a disclosure on figure at heart of pro-Trump January 6th conspiracy theory. Right. So the, and it says they're going to do a uh, they're compiling information to share with the def- defendants about Epps. This was March 29th. March 29th, they were preparing a, to, to share with everything about Ray Epps, but for some reason, uh, April, May, June, July, September, uh, one twenty ninth went after the other 29th, and they never seemed to get that information compiled and released, uh, Steve.
7: Well, here's what happened, Garland. This is unfortunate, but it was just the way it worked. They put the paperwork with some of the weapons. So we're going to Ukraine. Ah, Only 70%
0: of it got there or 30%.
7: Well, 70. Yeah. 70% got lost on the way. (laughs) And then the 30% that they did get, it's all out of order now. So they got to start all the way over. Uh, and it's just, you know, one of those things that that make paperwork a problem.
0: Here's something interesting from Sheer Post. <clears throat> the Israel Files, WikiLeaks doc show top Hollywood producers working with Israel to defend its war crimes. You know, when I found out that the latest iteration of Red Dawn had North Korea, this is the latest iteration of they, they redid Red Dawn. And this time it was North Korea invading the U.S. in Washington state. Now, how they pulled that off, they don't have a Navy to get there. I don't know. I guess they took commercial flights. I don't know. But I thought to myself, I think Hollywood's over the top a little bit with this propaganda stuff. Your thoughts on this?
7: Well, to to kind of uh, to put a cherry on top of that, have you heard, Garland, about the Marvel Universe's new superhero?
0: Oh, good Lord. Uh, what
7: I mean, is it, Captain Zelensky? <laughs> no, well, it's Sabra, who is a uh, she. She is a member of the uh, the Israeli police force. She is also a member of Mossad, and I'm not kidding you. In the original comic book, where the character was introduced, right after a massacre <laughs> in a village named Sabra. <laughs> Um, or the massacre was at least called Sabra, uh, The her superpowers hurt Palestinians. Those were her powers. And Marvel Universe has brought this character onto the big screen in a movie, Garland, I'm not making this up, called, um, what is it? Uh, you know, Marvel, whatever. New World Order.
0: New World Order. Yeah. Sabra. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There is a superhero named Sabra, who's the uh, who's an Israel Israeli Mossad member. And the movie is called New World Order. Yeah. Yeah. It's the new. Uh, movie. They're, 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 I guess they figured what the heck they might as well go all out. <laughs> and uh, is she does she have like her assistant? You know how uh, Bruce Wayne has like his assistant guy. I guess hers is Klaus Schwab. You might as well.
7: Well, I may as well be. She Her costume is, she's there at least in the comic books. It's, you know, it's a white superhero spandex with, with a, a large star of David in the middle. Um, no no speculation as to whether or not she has additional superpowers besides the ability to hurt Palestinians with, like, Wonder Woman bracelets. We're not, We're not sure. Um, although the ability did not deny white phosphorus gas attacks, you would assume is part of her superhero ability
0: wow, uh yeah, I'm looking at that uh Israel's military provided logistical support. That's weird. Uh, why Marvel's massage superhero in Sabra is all kinds of wrong. It cloaks his there, there's, there's articles about it. So that's one people need to look into. Sabra, the massage superhero who, oh, good Lord. Uh, Steve, I think we better call this, the, we, we better throw in the towel here. This is getting a little, this is getting a little over the top. We've been just talking with Steve Porkin. He's a national organizer for Action for Assange. Um, you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm Garland Nixon. More on the other side. Stay tuned. We are back and you're listening to The Critical Hour on Radio Sputnik. I'm your host, Garland Nixon. The New York Times is again revealed as a pro-war outlet that parrots claims by anonymous government officials. Joining us now to talk about this and more is Ray McGovern. He's a former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Ray, welcome back to The Critical Hour. Thank you. Well, Ray has a great article. You can find it at antiwar.com, and it's called The New York Times on Ukraine, Vietnam, Deja Vu. Ah, Deja Vu all over again, as I believe uh, Yogi Berra once said. Ray McGovern, great article. Your thoughts?
8: Thanks, uh, Colin. Uh, I'm a great uh, fan of Yogi Berra, but I'm a little depressed that these things keep happening over and over again. New York Times has a really terrible record of warmongering. And not many people realize that the Vietnam War well, let's put it this way, the the, the, the skits were greased by the New York Times and Washington Post and the other elite newspapers which um, quoted American officials or intelligence officials or People who say that they know, and uh, they gave us the wrong, the, the wrong rationale for the war, and also uh, the wrong deal on prospects for who is going to win. They gave us what generals in Saigon wanted us to hear, namely that we were winning. And they knew many of them that this was duplicitous, but rather uh, they hewed the line. And not many independent reporters got into print or onto the air in this country. This is happening again now with respect to Ukraine. And uh, the sad thing is that I'm from New York, right? So everybody there reads the New York Times. They don't buy it anymore. It's three dollars a throw. (laughs) Sunday it's more. Uh, But they they read it online. And if they read what they see in the New York Times, they think that that's right. Or they think that it's all the news that's fit to print. And actually, what they're getting is, is such a warped idea of what's going on in Ukraine that I fear for their sanity once they realize A, that Ukraine is not winning, B, that Biden can't have it both ways. He can't weaken. Russia, as his defense minister has said he wanted to do, that is, the Fed Secretary Boston, that he can't weaken Russia and avoid war at the same time. It's really getting pretty parlous now, was Russia itself saying, look, we're not at war with Ukraine. We're at war with NATO. And they are directly involved, and the consequences could be really amazing.
0: Well, another thing that you talk about that I think is very important where you say on the sanctions front, German politicians may not be able to resist turning on the spigot to Nord Stream 2, lest the European economy and the European people freeze this winter. That is a huge factor. And I mean, A, the factor of how it affects the geopolitical situation. But B, we're talking about a potential disastrous, catastrophic um thing, uh, uh, incident that could literally cost the lives of many, many Europeans um, due to the neglect of their um, of their leaders.
8: Yes, it's it's all already costing the lives, so to speak, of many of the industries there. Some are closing down, some are trimming down, and many are laying off workers. Um, You know, it's really quite amazing that we've come to this pass.
1: Now, there's a
8: reason for all this. Uh, Victoria Nuland noted early this year that if Russia invaded Ukraine, say goodbye to Nord Stream 2, the pipeline that had just been completed and was just just ready to have the spigot turned on, so to speak. Well, <laughs> Russia invaded. The next thing the U.S. insisted was that Nord Stream 2 be canceled or be stopped, that there be no gas for there. And that's what the Germans, in their sort of, in their in their puerile, in their obedience, in their lemming-like way, did. So put yourself in the in the place of a, a German who's really relatively educated and knows what's going on in the world. Okay, so they're asking me, this German, uh, to freeze to death or to to pay sky-high records for record prices for uh, oil and gas, just to heat my home. And um, and we have this idle pipeline, all finished, ready to go. All that has to happen is that the Germans, that is, the Germans say, okay, it wasn't a good idea, uh, please turn this figure, okay? That's all that has to happen. now. I know the Germans have been obsequious. I know all too well that they have danced to Washington's tune. But you would think that after 77 years, maybe they'd stand up and say, hey, you know, uh, you guys are not freezing to death. We are. And for what? To support a corrupt regime in Ukraine just because you, the United States, say so? No. No, thanks. We're not going to do it anymore. Okay, Russia. We'll make some concessions here. We'll not send the latest brand of tanks or aircraft weapons to Ukraine. If you just turn that, if, if, if you just let us turn that spigot on, I mean, that's what's going to come down to me, October, and November, and I wonder, I just wonder if the German government is smart enough to realize. They have to deal with
0: that in a serious way. One of the things you say, you talk about David Brooks saying Putin is a deeply deeply wounded tiger, that the Russians have lost... Eight hundred to one hundred and ten thousand troops have killed or wounded. Morale is off, is awful. They're on the defense. You know the thing—they're falling back. Oh, they're—they're they're just about ready to throw in the towel. You know that stuff is good propaganda. But at some point, the people wake up to reality and are like, "Well, if they've lost all those people, how come they just won the war?" At some point. Um, doesn't this come back? The chickens come home to roost. Doesn't this come, come back to haunt you? Or could it be that the people at the, at the New York Times say, "Yeah, we lied in them into war during Vietnam. We did it during both, uh, I, I, uh, you know, Iraq invasions. What the heck? Well, one more for good measure."
8: Yeah. Uh, besides, we sold a lot of newspapers, or uh, we got a lot of people that tune into us online, and you know, we're part of the club. Uh, uh, Garland, you and I are not part of this club, okay? <laughs> and uh, when you're supported by the industries, industry, when you're part of this, what I call the Mickey Mat, the military, industrial, congressional, intelligence, media, think tank, or academia think tank complex, when you're not part of that, well, uh, you don't understand how it how it is. The times, as you just said. You'll probably fluff this off and say, well, okay, we <laughs> were wrong about that. It almost came to nuclear war, but yeah, still trust this because we we print all the news that's worth printing. It break. Uh, the only problem is, except for us, you, Wilmer, me, uh, <laughs> the alternatives are very scarce and very sparse, and most Americans don't tune in to us or to people like Scott Ritter and others who know what the score is. So here we are, whaling away, uh, some of our politicians uh, threatening to use nuclear weapons, and the Russians, when I come back, and I say, well, you know, you ought to remember that we have the same. We have them too, and we have a very carefully laid out uh, uh, scenario where we'll we lose them. Please, please where we would use them. Please, please read that scenario. And the scenario is really simple, Garland. Number one, if we're attacked with nuclear weapons, we're going to use them. Number two, if the existence of our country is threatened in any way, we're going to use them. I mean, how simple is that? So now the conclusion might be, for a reasonable person, well, maybe it's best not to threaten the existence of Russia. But no, uh, the, the people who run our policy are such, well, disdainful, uh, exceptional people that they say, oh, no, 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 we, we can do this. We can we can challenge Russia and China at the time, Well, just watch it. And there lies the, the problem. These people are really not very well trained to think in terms of great power politics, and the other great powers are going to do us in if they're not. I
0: did it you know, something else that you bring up in this article, once again, it's Ray uh, McGovern's article. You can find it in um, antiwar.com. The other thing that's important, and I and I think it's really that really re, uh, uh, jumps out at me in your article where you say Maureen Dowd. And she had a, a title solo soulless saboteurs. Right. And she goes on. Putin's a megalomani- me- megalomaniacal supervillain thug inhinged. all oh, blah, blah, blah. No one can deal with someone so in- inhumane. The problem with that is. What happens when you get to the point where you need to negotiate? When you've turned someone into a cartoonish evil supervillain, it doesn't make sense to negotiate. At that point, you can't negotiate with them. You just have to fight to the end and we all die. That's the problem with that, Uh, Ray. Well,
8: it's our problem. It's not their problem. Uh, Their problem right now is to prevent any sort of negotiations. Uh, They think we can bleed Russia twice. They think the sanctions will actually chime in at some point, make Russia suffer. They're in an alternate universe. And so uh, they're going to keep up this policy. And, you and, and the Russians and, and the Chinese are going to be together, facing us down. And I dare say that uh, it's going to come to a no good end, as the Chinese say, unless we wake up and say, look, we can't challenge Both countries at the same time. We are going to be challenged by them if we do these ridiculous things still. And hopefully, that somebody will come in and say, Well, look, um, you know, we overestimate our ability. Zelensky is not somebody we can depend on. Let's talk. Right now, as you pointed out, with Maureen Dowd, with Brooks, also at the Times, with all of them, they say, Well, how can you negotiate with this person? That's the purpose here. You don't negotiate, they kill the the Russians white. Well, those figures you gave, uh, Russians killed, where'd they come from? <laughs> 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 it's, it's, it's a Book sitting down, as he said, in the article. You know, I learned a lot by sitting down and talking about American intelligence officials. They they told me that, uh, you know, <laughs> oh my God, you know, number one, books are going to about war do anybody about Russia or Ukraine. He just does what he's told by American intelligence officials who tell him this and my God, the Russians are losing and they're gonna uh, they're gonna just peel out and we'll be able to overtake Russia. No problem. Give
0: me a break. Yeah, I think at some point they're going to figure out that uh, it doesn't matter. I was going to say they're going to figure out that their numbers are wrong, but they didn't say the numbers because they were right or wrong. They said the numbers for a specific reason, and that reason is propaganda against the American people. Ray McGovern, former CIA analyst and co-founder of Veteran Intelligence Professionals for Sanity. Follow Ray McGovern on Twitter. And most importantly, you can go to RayMcGovern.com where you'll find all of his stuff and maybe even a few of the interviews that we did with Ray right here on Radio But. Thanks a lot, Ray. Talk to you soon. Most welcome. You've been listening to The Critical Hour here on Radio Sputnik. Thank you for allowing our voices into your space. On behalf of myself and my co-host, Dr. Wilmer Leon, we hope you are informed and enlightened. We look forward to talking with you all tomorrow right here on Radio Sputnik. Be safe. Peace and blessings. We are out.